let's just do a podcast of each other getting in the way verbally. Uh, 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 yeah. So what I mean, uh, 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 yeah, no, uh, well, can we? Um, Sorry. Um, yeah, well, jo- uh, uh, I, I was just going right, to so, say. Um, uh, mm, uh, uh, we'd like to thank Anthony Hish for the music. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for Monday, March 1st. 2021. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do today? At our basic level, we're going to have a conversation. We are Whoa. going to... Yeah, I know. It is... Uh, is I mean, I, I guess I'm just describing every podcast at this point. So let me elaborate a little bit more. Um, we're going to talk about... I mean, about, I guess not every podcast is a conversation. I think a lo- there are a lot out there that are just monologues. You're right. They're monologues or they're like you know, comedy or you're right. There's, there's more nuance to the world of podcast. Um, you, you got me there. Taskmaster Joe. Wow. You <laughs> said something a little too broad, Evan, and I took you to task for yeah, it. Yeah. You, you skewered me. I've been yeah. canceled. You got, got anyway. Me and the Muppets. That's something we should talk about later. The Muppets getting uh, quote unquote canceled. But anyway, we're going to have a talk about uh, the news of the day, current events, world events, ideas, policies, topics, and we're going to try to evaluate them in good faith. We're going to try to take the best of the ideas wherever they may come from and wherever they may lead. As always, we are going to do our level best to keep our listeners and ourselves adequately informed. Yeah, you know, and we we want to acknowledge that we don't know everything, you know. The idea is that we're adequately informed. You know, we're not the experts on the topic. But we like to think that we know enough to be able to talk about it in a We're way not the experts, that isn't but just. We skimmed the work of the experts. Yeah, we skimmed this. We skimmed the work of the people who skimmed the work of the experts, and we feel like we're <laughs> informed. Um, so uh, to be at a level where we can at least have the conversation and know what's going on, but we know we don't know at all. We, I mean, we aren't the experts. Um, and we're not on the ivory tower. You know, we realize that our position on things isn't sacrosanct. It's not the only one, you know, people who believe the same things as us and see the same facts can come to different conclusions. And that's perfectly valid, even though we'll sometimes criticize that it's valid. You know, we're not going to say you're invalid, which is, I mean, I don't know who says that. But anyway, this intro is going on entirely too long. Um, Evan, what what are we going to talk about today? Well, I think it's been too long since we've had a good classic COVID update. So let's let's talk about COVID. Let's talk about the vaccine rollout. Let's talk about the Biden administration's handling of it. And let's talk about some good news on the vaccine front with the Johnson & Johnson one-shot vaccine being approved and they can begin ramping up production now. Well, I think you basically talked about it. I think that's it. All right. Good show. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I got to say, it is. So we're at the end of February. It's about a year since all this really started going. Um, and what a year it has been. But I really, I just got a hand. Like, 
it is pretty damn crazy that we have all of these vaccines that are all pretty effective against the the COVID-19. Like, I remember, you know, about a year ago, I mean, probably Evan and I on this podcast were saying, you know, there's a good chance that 18 months is like the earliest a vaccine would be viable. Mm-hmm. And then even then, you know, all the extra stuff going along with that. And we ended up getting vaccines within nine months, which is just it. Like, I feel like because we've been in the thick of all of this, we, we there has been not as much recognition what like a scientific miracle this is that not only were we able to get vaccines built up in such a short time that that also were like highly highly effective and we're also about to have another one that is like even better than the ones before just kind of on the logistics side of it where the Johnson, you know, the Pfizer and the Moderna, um, they need to be refrigerated. One of them at like extremely cold temperatures. And you also need two shots of them for them to be take effective. Whereas Johnson and Johnson just needs to be refrigerated at like normal refrigeration temperatures and uh, only needs one shot, which is like way easier to make happen. Yeah. And it's just. You know, I think we're really starting to get on the other side of this. Yeah, like, the, the take a year ago was that an 18-month time frame would be a miraculous vaccine development, the fastest in world history. Yeah, and yeah, and that was still it. a blazing fast, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, and we smashed it, and we did it with multiple vaccines, three now in this country, plus multiple uh, promising vaccines and approved vaccines in other countries that maybe have not passed through the FDA in their emergency authorization progress. But nonetheless, the, the there are other global vaccines as well. So yeah, scientific marvel is a great way to describe it. The, the medical community and the vaccine development community really dominated this. Yeah. Well, and it's also like, I remember... You know, us having a podcast about a year ago, the failures of government to be able to contain this, which is still true. Like, um, you know, uh, as a government and, the, you know, the most uh, pop or prosperous country in the entire world, we should have been able to have better handle on things, um, you know, just from the beginning of the organization of the government. Um but and that also had to do with leadership at the time and, you know, gutting of those specific things because people in the past had thought about it. But and and one of the things I really wanted to hit on is like, why hadn't we invested in technology that really just makes it so that we're better able to pump out vaccines for that? And it turns out this mRNA vaccine production mode is that like it really it was a technology that had been around or at least theorized and they just really gave it a big shot here for the covid because that was you know the crisis at the time and it seems like 
launching off of that, it's it's I, I saw a take today or yesterday that this new mRNA vaccine development process could be used to make v- effective vaccines for like measles and mm. HIV and like a lot of other diseases that have long been elusive to traditional medical treatment. And so, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to ask, what do you know about the specifics of mRNA vaccine development? Because I watched a thing like at the beginning of COVID and I don't remember anything. So I, I don't hold it against you if you don't have the specifics. But if you do, I, I would love to hear them. And I think the listeners would as well. I, I'm not sure. I'm not, I will say I am not fully adequately informed to talk about this, but listen to my spitballing anyway. <laughs> so I believe that the mRNA vaccine, I, I'm not sure I, I haven't put heard the two and two put together, but I have a feeling that this is kind of along with that CRISPR technology that was talked about a few years ago, um, where, we have kind of figured out how to manipulate DNA within cells and be able to get them to reproduce new DNA, which the, the, the application here is that if you can give like the, at least I believe the way the MRNA vaccine, no, 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 no. I, yeah. So the way old vaccines would work is that you would kind of have a like dead particles of the virus and you give them to the body and the body would try and fight them, you know, even though they're dead. And through that muscle memory, your body would be able to fight the virus if it actually came. So what the mRNA virus does is that they synthetically produce the pertinent strands of the virus without it ever really being in your body and, you know, having to go through the process of trying to kill it in a specific way that makes it so that the body receives it properly. So the mRNA vaccine is just like... um, you know, instead of giving someone the whole book for a class, this is like giving them the notes mm. and they can effectively go off of that instead. But we had to figure out how to make the notes and what and now was we like, know. and what was pertinent. Yeah. And it seems like now we know. And hopefully this could really spur into helping solve a whole lot of other diseases that have really afflicted the human race in the last, I mean, some of them way longer, but then also, um, you know, in the last 50 years or so, especially with like HIV. And I think I may have said measles earlier. I think I, I actually meant malaria. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't going to say anything, but I'm pretty sure measles is one of the M's in the MMR yeah. vaccine. So they've they've got measles yeah. taken care of. Yeah, they got. I meant to say malaria. Yeah, that's um, a, that's a good thing. Yeah. So there is actually some good like futurist optimism to come from this. Now, I will say we are also not there yet. Um, 
So I, I, I kind of regularly track the COVID deaths and COVID cases. I like, you know, since the beginning. And so basically going into February, we had um, a big drop in the daily deaths and the, the case count. Now this, it stopped this last week, this last week, it started to see an uptick, but then it also went back down at the end. So it looks like hopefully that that little blip was actually just, um, from the supply chain of vaccines from the last week, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure on the whole lag of everything, but cases are down and deaths are down and it also got announced that like the month of march there are going to be a fuck ton of vaccines available um so hopefully it's going to be going from you know the going from only available to the select high risk groups to being available to basically who everyone who wants it i Um, hope so which will be good yeah i want it (laughs) yeah i want it too And I could have had Uh it, but so I live in Indiana and I work as a debate coach at a school in Ohio and Ohio was going to give me the vaccine, but I couldn't get to Ohio to get the vaccine. So I I couldn't transfer that to Indiana. (laughs) Dang. And Indiana has not prioritized educators in any way. My wife is a speech therapist who works in the schools and she can't can't get the vaccine. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah, because like I said, Ohio was going to give it to me. Um, People I know in Illinois who work in schools are able to get it. But Indiana's just like, eh, nah. Oh, yeah. Like basically all the teachers I know have already gotten like both doses of it. Yeah, which makes sense. Um, Yeah, yeah, (laughs) it makes sense. Um, but then they've also like resumed in-person school around here, which is good. Um, well, they've resumed in-person uh, school in Indiana too, without vaccinating the teachers. So, yeah, that's a little less good. But um, has has there been like from that? Do you know if there's been like any bad consequences? Of like um, teachers or staff getting COVID from it? I mean, generally speaking, throughout the pandemic, yeah. I mean, um, yeah. they just had, um, at, at one of my wife's schools, they had to quarantine an entire classroom because of a COVID outbreak, send them all mm. back to virtual. And yeah, uh, just, you know, certain schools so around the state been, have yeah. bad outbreaks. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's been what you would expect. They're making them be in you know, an enclosed space indoors together and it's causing outbreaks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yep. Hopefully here things will hopefully get better. Um the numbers are promising right now. They are still in the possible. aggregate it's much better. Yeah, it's still possible that, you know, another wave will come through, um, which would not be great. But um, we at least seem to be on a level where where things are getting better. 
um, definitely with these vaccines coming out and especially, you know, this next month, if we're able to really, really get it all, um, you know, greater, you know, supply out there, that would mean, you know, I mean, this was the argument the whole time you had to contain the virus to, you know, make everything else happen Mm -hmm. in the world, you know, solve all the other ailments. So if, uh, if we can roll out this vaccine effectively, then that's fucking good. Yeah. And that is the issue is that the producers are still ramping up supply because we wouldn't have to essentially ration it and make qualification for criteria for who could have it if there were just more doses available you know but Mm -hmm. right now there's only so and so many doses and so each state is left on their own to prioritize who gets it and who doesn't and almost all states are making priorities based on age so you know if you are elderly you have the ability to get it no matter what my retired grandparents in indiana are both vaccinated which is awesome i'm so glad for that that's that's a good policy choice um you know, no complaints about elderly people getting vaccines. But then in terms of what types of at-risk workers who are under that age limit qualify, that's varying from place to place. So almost everyone is, you know, vaccinating first responders and healthcare workers, which makes sense. But then it seems like there's less consensus about whether educators that, yeah. Yeah, are in that, that first group. Illinois and Ohio say yes. Indiana says no. Um, those are the three states that I know about. So, you know, yeah. T- tell me what's going on in California and Florida. Let me know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, geez, I, uh, it seems like things are getting better in California, but, uh, you know, those initial reports that it was kind of getting bungled at the beginning, but, um, yeah, it'd be, Hopefully things ramp up to the point where we don't have the problems as much anymore, Um, where there's just a big supply and it's really just about getting shots in people's arms. Mm -hmm. Um, And now that they the states have had, you know, a couple months experience doing it, hopefully that that is no longer, you know, something that they'll need to figure out. Mm hmm. And really just getting people vaccinated is so huge. Even if the vaccine's not 100% effective, you know, saying we get 40% of the population vaccinated and they have an 80% effectiveness of not spreading the virus, that's the equivalent of having 32% of the population in complete lockdown, you know, the... right. The multiplier effects here are huge. And so even small amounts of, you know, incremental improvements in vaccine distribution efficiency will have huge benefits towards stopping community spread of the virus. Yeah. Well, and also encouraging was this last week, um, basically every day, uh, the the number of people vaccinated increased um, <clears throat> like the velocity of the vaccination. Mm-hmm. So um, on Friday, 2.4 million people were vaccinated, which was more than the day before where 2.2 million people were vaccinated. Um, 
And remember, this is really good. The The target was 1 million people a day for 100 days. So if we're in the 50s of days and we're already, you know, doubling the million per day benchmark, this is a very encouraging rate. Yeah, I saw someone did the math and it's like if we are able to keep like kind of on this increasing trajectory that we are and take like all the doses that are supposedly going to be... Um, that are going to be available in the month of March produced by the, the companies that there there's a chance that we could have 70% vaccination by like April 30th. That would be, which like very good. <laughs> like that would be so very good. <laughs> like that's that that's been the thing the whole time was like, if you can contain the virus, things will be better. And if we're getting towards containing the virus, things will be better. Yeah. If, if the virus life. isn't spreading, we can reopen things and we can, you know, <laughs> send back people to back lives. to work. Yeah. And just regain some sense of normalcy. And obviously there are things that, you know, the, the, the vaccine is not a, a complete magic bullet you know people are still going to want to wear masks we're still going to try to emphasize outdoor gathering social distancing ventilation like things will change about the way that we conduct our social lives but we can have social lives again right social lives without fear of being bad yeah <laughs> yeah or you know god forbid people getting covid because you know that that's still it's still happening today which is like you know, it's kind of, you know, I, I remember when the debates happened and Trump said, you know, we're just going to have to learn to live with this. But also the vaccines are two weeks away, <laughs> two um, weeks. which ended up about being true. Um, uh, you know, the at least the approval, hmm. but um, or the the announcement of it. Um, but it's. uh yeah, it, in some, like, there, there is a duality to it where it's like, you know, in some ways, it's like, maybe we should shut everything down now again. And just as the last precaution to save, you know, you know, it's like trying to save the people, uh, you know, f you know, at the end of a war where, you know, there are still people killed on the last day, even if the armistice has been signed, mm -hmm. you know you know, it just goes into effect at a certain time. Like, you, you know, we should be wanting to do what we can to like, just limit the spread as much as possible because we know it is just a finite amount of time now mm -hmm. um, until everyone will be good to go. Yeah. Because that was always, I think a lot of the hesitancy to doing lockdowns and shut shutting down of certain businesses initially was that, there was a fear that we don't know how long it's going to take and we can't do this indefinitely. And so we better not do it at all now. Yeah. That like was said, the good faith version of it. <laughs> yeah. The good faith version. Um, but now we have the timeline. We know when we should roughly be able to get vaccine penetration up to a point where we can get things more or less back to normal. And so now should be the time when we say, look, I know that it'll suck not eating at a restaurant for a little bit, but 
you know, there's this end date and we can have a lot of confidence in this end date because people will be vaccinated, vaccine spread will be, or, you know, vaccine distribution will be this, community spread will be this, the infection rates will be this, and so we can we can more move forward with a little bit better prognostication and better data. But now everyone is just used to things not really being closed and things not being shut down. So I think even though we have a better argument to make in favor of shutting things down, I think the resistance would be even stronger now than it was, say, last April. Oh, yeah. Well, and it's also that, you know, because things were bungled in the early days and over the whole last year and even still some in the beginning of this year, like people are just tired of the whole thing and people's capacity to like, I don't know, interface with the sacrifice of it anymore has just diminished Mm -hmm. Um, because you know, they've gotten jockeyed. Well, and then also a lot of people would be like, what, we got the vaccines now and our life has to be worse? What is this? <laughs> yeah, um, because if you don't hear the argument that we just laid out, it seems very counterintuitive, right? Like, wait, things are getting better. Shouldn't we be ramping up the opening and not scaling it back? You know, there's there's a certain surface level logic to it, but, you know, there's the stronger case to be made on the other side, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's just um, so hopefully not too many people die here in the last stretches of it. Um, I mean, they will and it sucks. But like I said, deaths seem to be going down. We'll see what the trajectory is like this next week. Um, I mean, they're already down from their highest levels. So mm-hmm. that's that's good. Um, but it's still way above where, you know, levels that were seen for most of the the pandemic. So it is still pretty high. Yeah. We're just like just under 2000 deaths a day. And whereas an interesting uh, facet of the vaccine distribution is that I, I've read that the severe weather events of a couple weeks ago halted vaccine distribution because you know people were without power roads were damaged and inaccessible and so there was a lull in vaccine distribution in places like texas where the winter weather events were extraordinarily severe yeah so hopefully things can kick back up here um and they have been, like and, you said, the rate yeah. has been accelerating. So it's it's promising, but you just uh, we, we don't fully know the effects of that lull yet. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, definitely, you know, spring is coming. Um, well, I think people are just antsy now because it's been a it's been a cold winter so far, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit harsher winter than than normal. And so that. You know, even on a normal year, that makes people antsy. <laughs> then they've been cooped up for about a year. That makes people extra, extra antsy. So everyone's a little on edge to, you know, go outside, do what they want, or, you know, go and socialize. Things that make them feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why it's important to not try to 
keep everyone indoors necessarily, but just to direct them towards activities with lower risk factors. I, I think a lot has been found that pretty much anything outdoors is much, much safer than equivalent contact indoors because yeah. the the particles are able to diffuse in the open air. They don't accumulate in levels that are high enough to achieve infection typically. And so if you want to go and see your friend at a park or in some other open air venue, that typically should be good enough. And if it allows people to socialize without cramming into poorly ventilated indoor areas, that's probably a good thing to encourage. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the state of COVID. Um, is there anything else you want to bring up about COVID? Uh, everyone still be safe. Wear a mask. I guess wash your hands. That's what Seth Meyers always says. Yeah. Um, so just just do the smart things, guys. We're almost done. Don't yeah. don't don't make any boneheaded yeah. moves right now. Yeah. Um. Hmm. What should we move on to next? Um. I guess we could move on to, since it's somewhat related, COVID relief. Um. Yeah. Through. Yeah. So, um, to lay the groundwork of what's happening, um, just. You know, today or yesterday, when it when we're recording on Sunday, um, the House passed the uh, 1.9 trillion dollar uh, COVID relief package. Um, this includes the 1,400 dollar checks to people, expanded unemployment insurance through September, I believe. Um, you know state and local aid, money for vaccine distribution, and just a whole host of other things to get things really rocking and get this economy back on pace. Um, you know, to help get the vaccines going and then to also help provide a springboard for things to get going once, you know, vaccine really ramps up. And people are able to go out and do things. Mm -hmm. And there are some criticisms from the left that this doesn't include everything. Um, a, there are a lot of people who are upset that um, the checks are $1,400 instead of 2000 Not everyone accepts the the that this is in addition to the six hundred dollars that was given in january which to be fair i guess it has been a long time since that happened mm -hmm. or i guess it was even december but a lot of those promises were made before the insurrection happened and um we kind of had to take care of that first um you know, just kind of the politics of that. I mean, a lot of people will be like, oh, you know, why do we even impeach him? It doesn't do anything. Well, if you don't even do anything after that, even if it's futile, I mean, what's the point of having impeachment? Um, but yeah, but that's getting um, away from things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> oh, no. Um, I just think that for a $1.9 trillion bill, I think it's kind of interesting how efficient 
the bill really is from what I understand. Um, and you can tell because the conservative attacks on it are extraordinarily fatuous, just strange and silly. Yeah. They don't like that money is going to like fund museums and stuff, even though it's a industry that's been hit hard by COVID related restrictions. Um, well, every time there's a Democrat spending bill, they immediately go for find any funding for the arts. And they're like, should yeah. <laughs> we be funding the arts now? And it's a $1.9 trillion dollars. And what, there's 25 million towards some arts or something like that? Yes. Like I saw some, yeah, I saw some graphic where it was like going after the pork and it was like a screen that tallied up all these things, all this frivolous money. And it wasn't even a billion dollars in a $1.9 trillion spending package. Yeah. Like, this is really targeted for a lot of things that need to happen. Um, And another thing that's been a little bit disingenuous, I think, in critiquing the bill is, again, we're reviving this narrative of the blue state bailout, that money that's going to state and local authorities to help uh, them account for budget shortfalls and not have to cut services like maintenance of roads and spending on first responders like police officers which you know that that, that's been i think the good response for conservatives who don't want to fund state and local authorities is that they're the ones who are really defunding the police Uh, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing i guess is up to you but like let's call it what it is if you don't want to fund the local city governments you are defunding the police by default but anyway, yeah. the other thing, though, that I want to hit on is that it's been empirically proven that the narrative of the blue state bailout is absolute bunk. Red states are in just as much need as blue states. In many cases, they've been hit more harder yeah. relative to their population density than blue states. And so and to be fair, the. Republican mayors and Republican governors understand that and they just want the relief. It's the national congressional Republicans who are pushing these baloney narratives, I guess, just in an effort to spend less money on the bill. I I don't know. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's the thing is that um, a lot of states that are more red, they're um, they are more uh, hesitant to have truck uh tax structures that would have weathered the pandemic now i'm not saying that anyone should have designed their tax structure to be able to remain solvent during a pandemic but a lot of red states were uniquely hit by this because there's a fair number of states out there that don't even have an income tax and they rely almost entirely on sales tax to fund their governments Mm -hmm. Or, um, you know, like in the state of Florida, they rely heavily on tourism, which didn't happen as much. Um, So the fact that states like these, um, you know, had way short, you know, uh, shortcomings in budget because, you know, just the activities that generated tax revenue were not happening for them. The other aspect of that, yeah, you're absolutely right, Joe, but a lot of these states have passed balanced budget amendments, which says that, you know, we can't collect any surplus 
money to put away for a rainy day. And then if we have revenue shortfalls from a decrease in taxes, we cannot deficit spend. We have to just cut services. And that's a part of the state constitution in a lot of these states. So that's where the dilemma is coming from. The federal government does not have a balanced budget directive. So they can deficit spend, they can change their tax code, they can do whatever. But states with balanced Mm -hmm. budget initiatives that have passed are in a real bind here. Yeah. And that's something I, I, I have individually wanted to study, like, um, because there, there is actually good reason why states have balanced budget uh, amendments is because once they actually incur a lot of debt, they can't as easily um, handle it as the United, you know, as the federal government can, because they don't control the currency at the state level. Mm-hmm. So it kind of makes sense. Like, you know, Illinois has a big debt problem. And, you know, if Illinois was its own entity, then they could just um, devalue their currency and print more money and, you know, do, st- you know, do monetary policy to, you know, make it not so bad. Um, but they can't do that. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> because they use U.S. dollars, so they're kind of stuck with the debt. So it kind of makes sense why um, states have these balanced budget amendments or, you know, uh, you know, policies in place and, you know, to each their own at, at each state. Um, so, yeah, they're, and they're not as able to deficit deficit finance things like the states don't have the same credit rating as the United States does. Mm-hmm. Um, so they often, a lot of states end up having to borrow at much worse rates than um, the United States can because the United States of America is the gold standard for uh, credit rating of countries. So, and you know, the whole financial system is of uh, the world is built on the background of the U S treasury bond. But anyway, 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 so so state and local aid is good. We don't want states going bankrupt, um, which is something people really argue whether they can do or not. Um, It's an interesting proposition, but we don't even want to get there. Yeah, that Um, that would cause a whole lot of misery first. So let's not worry about it. Yeah. Forefront, it would cause misery. (laughs) Um. So we don't want that. We want our, you know, all of our states and locales to, you know, be able to keep doing what they're doing. And, you know, it's not their fault that a fucking pandemic happened. Yeah. Um, so that's good. Um, relief. I mean, I'm kind of ambivalent on checks, you know, to people. I like the, you know, uh, unemployment insurance boost. That's good. That's very targeted. Oh, and we haven't even talked about it. The expanded child tax credit. Yeah. Um, and uh, making it, I, I believe they're being able to make it refundable, which I think is the big thing. Um, so explain, what does it mean if it's refundable? So there are thing, you know, there are tax credits. And what tax credits will do is um, they it, where a deduction decreases the amount of your income reported that tax can be collected on, a tax credit affects the amount owed. So if you get a tax credit 
like, let's say you owe a thousand dollars in federal taxes one year based on your income and you have something that gives you a thousand dollar tax credit that would mean that you would then owe zero dollars in taxes now but most tax credits aren't refundable so let's say you qualified for that same thousand dollar tax credit but you only owed five hundred dollars in taxes that year you're only going to benefit that five hundred dollars because they're not going to give you that extra thousand back because you didn't earn enough and this is what happens with the child tax credit where it it's a really good thing for a lot of low earners um but the weird thing is is that you have to be earning money to get it um because um like let's say right now the child tax credit is you know they're they're putting it up to three thousand dollars so this is a tax credit to give to parents for having children you know for the children that they have and if you work enough to make three thousand or owe three thousand dollars worth of taxes in a year then you'll have your entire tax bill wiped out and you'll get a nice fat um you know income tax return but if you owe less than three thousand dollars then you won't be able to get the full amount because you know before now it has not been refundable but if you were to say like in the next year there was a parent who made zero dollars and owed zero dollars in taxes if the tax credit is refundable then they would still qualify to get a tax return of three thousand dollars so it sounds like a refundable credit is even more beneficial for lower earners for the lowest earners like cool. the bottom yeah <laughs> like the people who most need that money um full stop so um now would it be better to have a child allowance you know that comes every yes yes there are way better policy ways to do that but under the framework and the constraints that we have now working under you know legislation as it exists currently it's a good thing it's a good step forward my question though is that in the 1.9 trillion dollar thing the house just passed or is that a separate proposal okay because i know mitt romney had pitched something and then he was like getting trying to get dunked on by other conservatives for why i don't know yeah so his is a direct provision it's not a tax credit Mm. um so so even better in my opinion well yes even better um now there were some uh critiques about how he funds it um but really his yes his is better um would be a direct provision that paid out monthly to parents but like i said under the guise of the framework that we have now um this is a good step forward under the legislating conditions that is you know budget reconciliation and the issues in the senate Mm -hmm. um an expansion of the tax credit and a tweak to whether it's refundable or not which is a good thing um at least in my eyes 
because you know the poorest people need the most money and mm-hmm. currently the way it's structured the poorest people get the least money yeah to so. get the maximum money you have to earn you have to hit a certain income threshold to take advantage to take full advantage of yeah, the current for it to mean credit. anything yeah mm-hmm. now it ramps up very fast but the fact that it has to ramp up is still the problem yeah it's still a, uh, a weakness yeah so um i'm very positive on this uh budget reconciliation or this uh relief package i think it's really good um you know is it everything that we've wanted no i mean they also tried to put in the 15 dollars minimum wage there but they got struck down by the parliamentarian and the democratic caucus in the senate really doesn't the votes aren't there for uh you know overruling the parliamentarian I mean, hell, Joe Manchin was even like lukewarm on $15 an hour and was really kind of going for, you know, floating 11, um, which was not what everybody wanted. But under the current constraints of everything, it's good. Um, so here's the, here's the question, though, is do you think that the 1.9 trillion is going to be passed by the Senate or is it going to have to go through a more extensive revision process? I think this one that just passed the house, I think that's going to be the one that passes the Senate. Okay. I, I, from my understanding, I think the big thing that was really kind of holding it back of whether it was going to go through or not was the, the minimum wage thing. Um, They were really testing whether that, could go through budget reconciliation but it is my understanding that the way the bill is now is what they're planning on passing okay so hopefully here soon um they had i think they had a deadline of like this week or next week sometime early march uh the the provisions of the last bill um end so wanted to make sure that um, that stays continuous and they're running right up into that. And it looks like they're going to be able to pass it on time. Okay. Well, so, that would be good. Yeah. And, and you know, there were, I, I did see a good theoretical framework where there was saying that um, economists had projected about a $3 trillion output gap in the economy, which is kind of like... Um, like what the economy is capable of versus what it was actually doing. And between the, the last uh, relief package that came out in December, which was a, just a hair under a trillion, and this one that's going to be just a hair under two trillion, it's going to be coming close to hitting that three trillion dollar mark. Um, so essentially doing what you would hope government would do, which is step in when there is some catastrophic event that's outside of everyone's control and getting the economy back up to level. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the Democrats are really trying to learn the lessons of the last recession, which isn't, you know, things are different now, but they realize that what really hurts their electoral chances is having an economy that's stuck in the mud. Mm -hmm. And they're really trying to make sure that you know um they're not doing a stimulus that is too small they're trying to go ahead and make sure that you know there's money out there and that what needs to get done gets done yeah they learned their lesson 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't no no pussyfooting around. And you know, there's talk of uh, you know, the the next stimulus after this, you know, they have another budget reconciliation that they can do for this year under the again, the current rules of how legislation can be done. And there's talks of making that one trying to do uh infrastructure with that um with whatever scope that they can do. So, if that ends up being something that happens, I think that will be a huge win and it, very good. It would be a huge win, but I just I get kind of skeptical every time because every single politician, the left and the right, everyone's like, "Yeah, we got to got to fix our infrastructure." And then it just doesn't fucking happen. So, yeah. <laughs> we'll see. Well, I would we love did, to see it happen yeah. too. Yeah. Who knows? We'll see. Um and you know, would love to just you know, be able to get rid of the filibuster and, you know, actually do some legislating, but that does not seem to be on the cards at the table. No matter how much you'd bully Joe Manchin, he seems pretty uh, firm in his convictions. So, um, yeah. <laughs> and and in Joe Manchin's defense, he has to be to hold a blue seat in West Virginia. You know, he, yeah. he can't, he can't operate the same way that a, a safely blue Senator can. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's not that he's, you know, playing it safe in a place where he doesn't need to play it safe. He need like he knows how to thread that needle for his constituency and he needs to keep doing that. Um, yeah, you know, it's some frustrating. Are like, it's very oh, yeah, frustrating it because it's almost like Manchin doesn't operate as a blue senator. He operates as a purple senator, which can be an asset in some votes and then restrict Democrats' legislative abilities in other votes. So it's it almost changes the calculus a little bit. He, he's like a half Democrat. But, yeah. you know, I guess That's a half just, Democrat is better than a full Republican from the Democratic agenda's perspective. Well, right. Yeah. Some people will be like, why do we even put up with Joe Manchin? He just needs to go. It's like, well, do you want a senator who will listen to you sometimes from West Virginia? <laughs> like, like that. This is the best we're doing under that circumstance. Yeah, and, the alternative you know, is like, going to be much less amenable to your ideas. Yeah, like it. Like seriously, if Mansion doesn't win, or you piss him off too much, then you lose the Senate majority. I mean, we're going to try again at the, uh, you know, at the midterms in, in you know next year. But, um, <laughs> you just, uh, you got to play with the deck you have. And I mean, this was, this was well talked about before, uh, the election last year was that, you know, how are Democrats going to do, you know, it's like if they only end up winning 50 seats, then it's going to be a very fraught legislation. You know, there, it's going to be tough. They're not going to be able to have broad support for a lot of things and, they're going to have to get literally every single person. And with Joe Manchin and Christian Cinema, you know, the the ideological window is not as wide as it would be if, you know, there had been 52 senators and then they could just kind of leave uh, Cinema and and uh, Manchin alone. But, mm -hmm. you know, that's that's not the world that we live in today. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. Keep keep reminding me. <laughs> it's not just that democrats are spineless 
or you know the the establishment but anyway anyway um, do we have anything else we want to talk about um anything else in the news those were kind of the two big things yeah i mean there's a ton in the news but we, we talked what for we a can while. talk about yeah <laughs> i mean there are other things that are out there that i believe we're not as adequately informed on so um you, you know about yeah, what's going I mean, on in myanmar oh fuck not really so i mean i know that there's like bad stuff there was like a coup that happened yeah um, so there there's a long political history in myanmar that i'm not entirely privy to but basically um Aung san Suu Kyi is this the figure within Myanmar and she was a ruler for a while in like the eighties. And she was for the most part, fairly democratic, but she ruffled a lot of feathers and she never gained the support of the military. So she was eventually ousted. And then around 2011, she, the social, the social climate in Myanmar basically enabled her return. And even though they had changed the constitution of their country to explicitly bar her from holding office again the she was basically able to install a, a proxy leader and continue to run the government in in 2011 her party won a an election in Myanmar but it's always been a very tenuous situation where the suchi and her supporters that party still don't have the support of the military and so recently the military did enact a coup and they overthrew the the democratically elected governing body of Myanmar and this has led to huge amount of counter protests and general strikes within the country you know people who work for government hospitals not showing up for work students out in the street protesting and then the big development was that yesterday the military got violent all across the country. It was a coordinated attack, and 19 protesters were killed yesterday. So that's what's going on in Myanmar. It's going to get worse before it gets better, um, and things are pretty scary over there and anti-democratic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, things were pretty scary here for a little while, but we never had the military inserting itself. Like, yeah. The whole time, the American military was like, stop asking us. Stop, <laughs> stop, stop. We're, we're, no, we're not, we're not playing. We're not, we're not in this. <laughs> and, you know, good on them because, you know, a lot, clearly as we see, militaries around the globe don't always exercise that restraint and they can really fuck shit up. So say what you will, but the United States military's non-intervention policy is a very good thing for like domestic yeah. political squabbles. Right. While they may have squabbles about, you know, the role of civilian leadership um, of the, the, the military, they, they still believe that that is part of it, that, mm -hmm. you know, the military isn't the whole government, um, which, you know, happens other places so um good on the american military um for that i guess yeah but yeah the one thing the one tidbit i know about the Myanmar coup is that i saw a video where it was this 
you know, chick and she was like live streaming, like, uh, I'm going to use this word because I don't have a better word for it, but like a Zumba class. And it was like, it, you know, at this location where it had like the Capitol in the background. And while she was zooming, <laughs> doing the, the live stream, the fucking caravan of military vehicles was seen in the background going off to do the fucking coup. Oh, damn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. So she was just d- there doing her, her aerobic dances and the fucking coup was the coup <laughs> parade was on its way. Like, Oh, wow. Yeah. It was something. So, um, yeah, Myanmar having a tough time tough go of it you hate to see it you hate Uh, yeah sarcastically saying but true and no sarcasm um this is the new level of sincerity double irony yeah we're we're gonna use a sarcastic phrase but then go but for real no no Um, seriously guys yeah yeah me and martin (laughs) tough times um, so I guess on that level, I think we'll, uh, wrap it up here. Yeah. It's a good, good um, point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we hope that you guys have learned something. Um, you know, hopefully it was all the friends that we met along the way was the real podcast. <laughs> um, and, um, the yeah, most important like thing in the podcast you- is friendship. That's true. Yep. Yep. It's right on the page. Um, so Yeah. Thank you for listening. Uh, We'd like to thank Anthony Hish for the music as always. Um, If you ever want to tell us anything, send in this email to podcast at adequatelyinformed.com. But anyway, my name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been adequately informed.